This is a very famous and well-loved account in the Old Testament here. Naaman, the Syrian, cleansed and healed of his skin affliction or leprosy, as it is told to us here. 2 Kings 5, let us hear God's holy word. Please give your attention to it as it's read in the presence of his people. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. 2 Kings 5, God's holy word. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the the girl from the land of Israel. The king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider, see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel." So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace." 
But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, there, has, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? He said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we come humbly before your word, and we confess that we need your work and your spirit to understand it. We need your grace that it might take root in us, and your power, that it might change and transform us. May it do so for the honor and glory of your name, and for Christ's sake. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it true that it's the unexpected things in life that change us the most. You can look back upon any year, perhaps any month or any week that you have, and there will be things that were totally unexpected that become woven into the very fabric of your life. It just becomes part of reality from that point forward. Now, of course, some of these things are good things. Some of these things are very hard and very difficult things. You can think of a surprise pregnancy test that is positive and the parents did not plan for it, but what a joyous occasion it might be. You can also imagine the phone call or the email or some message that you get that relays to you some tragic situation that breaks your heart or brings you to your knees. It's the unexpected things. But for believers in Jesus Christ, there is an anchor which steadies us through all of the life's unexpected twists and turns. But that anchor which we have is something which is itself unexpected, isn't it? There is no humble heart, no humble heart of the believer that could expect grace or going back before Christ came could have expected that that is how God might save us or restore us to himself. And we look uh, at how this opens up for us in God's Word. What we're aiming for today is that our hearts would gain a deeper understanding of God's unexpected grace. 
that we would understand it in a deeper way. And that that would flow forth into our hearts and our lives into greater humility and richer love for the God who saves us by His unexpected grace. We do that in in the context of considering this passage and also our catechism lesson with baptism. Baptism wonderfully pictures for us the unexpectedness of God's grace. It's It's a sign and a seal. It's not a magical rite of religiosity. It's not something which heals in itself, but is used by God, by His blessing, to to proclaim the gospel to us and to convey His grace to His people and to the elect. It's not accompanied by a flashiness or worldly pomp and show. It's a stunningly humble sign given to His people and given to God's people without respect of their earthly status. It's important to notice. This is a story that shows God's grace. Baptism is a wonderful sign of God's grace. This is an account that is rich with spiritual imagery and all kinds of pointers to God's salvation, pictures of what He does for us in Jesus Christ. So let's consider these things together, beloved. First, help from unexpected places. Help from unexpected places. Second, salvation in an unexpected pattern. And lastly, life change in unexpected people. First, help from unexpected places. The setting for this, here we are in 2 Kings, the the man of God, the prophet Elisha, and his many doings uh, for God and and for the the people of God. We have here Syria, which of course was one of the primary enemies of Israel at this time, and a lot of back and forth, going all the way back to Judges, and then kind of wells up again here in the story of 1 and uh, 2 Kings. Syria has gained servants from Israel by raiding, and so we already have kind of a negative connotation with Syria, and there we see they've taken some of of God's people for themselves, and and so that, that increases the negative feelings that we have as we begin reading this story. But the Syrians, and even the commander of the Syrian army, is not beyond God's reach. That's one of the the amazing things uh, about this story. But the first unexpected place where help comes is this very servant girl who has been brought back to the household of Naaman. She's contrasted with Naaman in a number of ways in our passage. Naaman is a great man. She is a little girl. He's a mighty man of valor who's in high favor. She works as as a servant, as a slave. And yet Naaman's power, his status, his riches cannot save him. He's afflicted with a chronic ailment, leprosy. Now, it doesn't seem that this is what we would call leprosy today, Hansen's disease. In the Bible, oftentimes leprosy uh, refers to a, a whole category of skin afflictions, and oftentimes it's sort of a, a scaly skin disease. And so he is getting through life with this chronic affliction. It certainly was a, a great hindrance to him, but it seems that he has gone out and, and won victory. It says the Lord has given him victories, a reminder of how God governs all things. But he's, he's getting through life. He's sort of limping through life, though he is impressively successful in all that he has done, isn't he? Here, perhaps, we have maybe the first spiritual image. Oftentimes, sin, spiritual sin, is is pictured as a spiritual death, and indeed that is true. But as we consider people who are lost in their sin, they are living and breathing and moving physically. 
And uh, we can think of their their sin and their condemnation in a lot of these ways. It's, It's like one of these chronic afflictions. They're limping through life. They're not getting through life in the way that they have been made to do, the way that God has made us to flourish in communion with Him. And so this servant girl, this this lowly servant girl, relates to her mistress, her master's wife, a simple truth. There's a prophet. I know a man who is the real deal, who can save and help Naaman. Help from an unexpected place. Notice a couple of things about what this servant girl does. Notice the particularity of her faith. She doesn't appeal to spirituality or religiosity in general. She doesn't say, well, there's got to be someone out there who can help him. I've I've seen spiritual things happen. I, I know that there are people out there who can do things, and there's probably a lot of paths. There's probably some people here in Syria. No, the particularity of her faith. And there's a scandal of particularity, not only in this story, but all throughout the Scriptures. The the scandal of particularity. There is one path, there is one road that gets you reconciled to God. So notice the particularity. There's a prophet, the prophet there in Samaria. He is the one, he is the only one that I'm willing to proclaim to you can help. It doesn't matter how far Samaria is. It doesn't matter how many hurdles Naaman has to get over in order to get there. That's where he needs to go, to that one place. Notice not only her particularity, notice her courage to speak. There's something there for all of us, isn't it? Not all of us are called to be ministers. Not all of us are called to, to leave our homes and go out into a foreign mission field. But we are called as God's people to be witnesses to all that He has done for us. What's that old spiritual song? If you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can say the love of Jesus who died to save us all. You need to be ready to say the name of Jesus in your everyday life as God gives opportunity to say to others very simply, very humbly that you know You know the one who is able to save and to heal, and you believe it with all of your heart. What an example this servant girl gives to us. The second place that's unexpected is that this happens outside of the palace. Notice the king of Syria sends Naaman. He says, okay, this this sounds like it's worth a shot. Because at this point, Naaman, he's he's, he's kind of willing probably to try just about anything. I'm going to send you to the king of Israel. I'm going to send you with a delegation and and riches and all kinds of pomp and show in order to show that, Naaman, you matter to me. It's kind of a, a, a gracious and kind thing that the king of Syria does. It's misguided, but it's kind. He sends him to the palace, to the king of Israel, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. The gold alone would have been worth about 600 years' wages for a normal worker. So a lot of money, a lot of gifts. The king of Israel, what does he think? He thinks it's a trick. He's saying, I'm going to ask you to do something that you cannot do so that I can become angry at you and then I can go to war with you. That's what the king of Israel thinks is is going on. The king of Syria is just really doing what is the, the way of things in that time? Everything ran through the king. The, the, the religion of the land went through the king. The king is the one who decided these are the ones we're going to worship. These are the ones that we're not going to worship. 
prophets and priests would have uh, existed in most nations in that time underneath the king, but not God's prophets. Not in Israel. It's different, isn't it? And what a blessed picture that is. Elisha didn't work for the king. Elisha was not under the king. So they leave the palace. They leave the palace. Now, they go to uh, Elisha's place there, and he doesn't even receive an audience with Elisha, does he? Elisha sends a messenger to the door to greet him and to tell him what to do. Now, this is too much for Naaman. He says, I'm, I'm not putting up with this. Does he know who I am? How, how, how do I not get at least an audience with this prophet? So he says, I'm done. We're leaving. And who is it that talks sense into him? Here you have another something unexpected, don't you? His servants. They speak some sense into him. They say, listen to what has been said. He didn't say, just go into the river so that you might be ritually cleansed. He said, go into the Jordan, dip yourself, and you will be healed of your leprosy. It's a, it's a good word that he has said. Listen. Give it a chance. You must do it. You see, from all of this, all these things weaving together, God does not play politics. God is not engaged in earthly or worldly power games. He doesn't care. It does not matter to him the status of someone who is seeking to be healed. He doesn't play politics. He doesn't work on the categories that this world works on. All earthly status in this, in this great, wonderful story, it's regarded as nothing. Naaman's power did not get him the help of Israel's king. It did not get him a special audience with Elisha. It's the lowly who keep pointing Naaman on the right track. The wisdom in the story lies with the humble and the faithful, but don't, don't miss the flip side of it either. God does not have disdain for Naaman because of his status. God does not ignore him or send him away because he says, well, I don't need to regard your earthly power, so get out of here. He saves him. He heals him. See, that's how it works with God. Doesn't, God doesn't take earthly power and flip it upside down so that he only blesses the poor and the down and out. God regards all earthly power as nothing, and he gives his grace and his mercy and his salvation where he will. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. It's the messenger's word that saves him. He, he goes by the word of the messenger uh, to finally go to Jordan, a reminder of the, the power of the word of God, the, the humble way in which the gospel is proclaimed to the world. In jars of clay, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, right, there's, a, there's a weakness, there's something in the, the preaching and the proclamation that to the world looks like foolishness. And it was a stumbling block to the Jews when the Apostle Paul went throughout the world proclaiming Christ. It's a stumbling block and it's foolishness. People standing up and saying that there's a crucified king who has been resurrected and he's reigning in heaven. We have this treasure in, in jars of clay. There's much outward weakness in preaching that shows us that the power belongs to God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. And that's exactly what we see in this story, isn't it? It's not only through the word of the humble messenger 
which again shows us that the, the, the power is not with Elisha. It's sort of the tactile, you know, placing his hand on Naaman. That's not happening here. But then you have this dirty river in the mind of Naaman. I had better rivers back home. Could have just stayed home and washed in those rivers. But it's not the water that saves him, is it? That's part of the picture. It's not the, the water that's saving Naaman. It's God. God is the one who is saving him. Naaman is not tempted to believe that there was anything special about the water. There's also no doubting the power of God who blessed his going into the water. Naaman's skin is so totally healed after he goes and dips himself. It describes it the skin of a little child. Smooth. Soft. It's a couple minutes to, to consider all of these things as it relates to baptism. The, the water did not save Naaman. God did. And we see that very clearly. And baptism does not save us. God saves us. But through this cleansing of Naaman, which we can say is like a baptism. Through this baptism, God shows Naaman his salvation. It's not just that his skin is healed. The, the, the glory of this story is that he comes out of the water and he has true and vital faith in the God of the Bible, ready to serve him with all of his life, ready to give everything he has for him and to serve him all of his days, right? Through baptism, God shows him his salvation and calls him to salvation. And, and then Naaman embraces in true faith the God of salvation. And baptism is not a magical rite, but it's not nothing. It's how God shows us with our eyes so that we may see what goes on to someone who is plunged into Christ, what goes on to someone who is, who is sprinkled with the blood of Christ, total cleansing and washing away of sins. And in that, God shows us the, the, the power of His salvation, and He calls us to faith and repentance through baptism. When we see an adult convert baptized, or we see a covenant child baptized, God is reminding all of us about the power of the gospel, the power of Christ's blood and His work that can be known only through true faith. It's a way that He proclaims that to all of us and calls us to himself. It's a salvation in an unexpected place for Naaman. And we also see it's in an unexpected pattern. It's the pattern of grace, the pattern of grace. And grace is antithetical to things in the world like karma or commerce. Grace is antithetical to things like karma or commerce. The pattern of grace that is so woven into this story is, is so beautiful. There's a when, when Naaman comes with all of his money and all of his riches, Elisha doesn't even see it, right? He, he sends his messenger out. So you know that that's not what's getting him the special treatment. Yes, God is, is, is making this great provision for Naaman to cleanse him of his skin disease and to call him to true faith. But it's not because of the money that he has. Naaman is ready to pay up front right? accept all of these gifts and do whatever, you're, what, do whatever you can do. That's not what goes on. And then afterwards, we think we surely know that, okay, now 
God has given his salvation, his blessing to Naaman. So now he's coming and giving a free will offering. Now he wants to come and shower Elisha with gifts. And that's probably better because he would probably get more at that stage. Elisha says no. There's there's nothing that smacks of any transaction here. Come to the waters, Elisha is saying. Come, buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without price. No transaction at all. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come and buy without money. There's an astonishing reality of grace here. Grace is something that's, that's not merited, it's demerited. God gives us the, the opposite of what we deserve in grace. It's something you can't buy. It's something you can't purchase for yourself. It, it's, it's not something that was coming back to you anyways. The famous rock star who often says things that kind of sounds like solid faith in Christianity. And he, he was saying in an interview something about grace and karma. He said, grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is good news because I'm holding out for grace, he says. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. How about that? The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out does not come back to us. Antithetical to karma. Naaman in his life, think of what he has done. He's, He's gone up in battle against God's people. He has raided God's people and taken some for himself. And God gives him this rich blessing. Grace unmerited and grace unexpected. The grace for all of us is is unmerited. It's unexpected. It's not according to worldly status. It's not ethnically, ethnically bound. Here we have this wonderful picture of what's to come in the New Testament. This, This expansion of God's grace to every corner of the world to bring the message of salvation. This, it's interesting that Elisha tells him to, to dip seven times in the water, which really is, is more of a, of a Jewish cleansing ritual, which pictures for us that, that there is room in, in God's kingdom for this Syrian to enter the temple and to truly worship. Right? That, that, that is a, an astounding picture of the new covenant that even when we think of Christ being crucified on the cross and the, 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 the veil of the temple is torn in two, that the, the presence of God is now going to be with, with people and it's going to be worldwide and it's going to be according to the work of the Spirit and according to the faith that God gives through the gospel. Here we have that pictured for us here. Because he's a Syrian, he is not cut off from the presence of God. Wonderful and astounding. But grace is also exclusive. And it's, it's universal, it's not ethnically bound, it's also exclusive. There's a scandal here of particularity. Naaman had to go to the exact place that Elisha said. Go to the Jordan, not one of your rivers back home. Do exactly as I say. And just so you, beloved You must go to the exact place God tells you to go to be cleansed. There is no other place other than the waters of Jesus Christ to be cleansed of your sins and your stains. It must be Christ who washes you. 
that you would be whiter than snow. You must go to the crucified king. You must go to the risen and reigning king. You must go to the waters of Christ. You cannot go to any religiosity. You cannot go to moralism. You cannot rely on your own works. You cannot go to humanitarianism. You can't go on any other path that would say, here you have peace. Here you have serenity. Here you will achieve nirvana. There's one road. There's one river. There's one place. Have you gone to the waters of Jesus Christ? You can go and buy without money and without price. Grace is exclusive. It's also triune. You can see the love and the grace and the compassion of the Father weaving everything in this story together. You can see the power of salvation in the cleansing waters of Christ. You can, and then you can finally see the renewing and sanctifying grace of the Spirit. Just as baptism is done in the triune name, so we see the triune God at work in this story. And then finally, as we close, the life change in unexpected people. First, there's the cautionary tale. The, the transformation that happens in the second half of this story is, is both ways. It's unexpected both ways. You have Gehazi, who is a member of the covenant people, circumcised, close to the man of God, Elisha, has heard many things of, of God's Word and His declaration to the people through Elisha, but he's, he's filled with bitterness. He's filled with greed. He's filled with anger. This Naaman, the Syrian, he says, comes up a couple of times. He swears by the Lord that he's going to go get something from As the Lord lives, I will run after him. And so the change that God brings about in Gehazi is that he becomes cut off from God's people and afflicted with the very thing that Naaman had. Outside of God's blessing and experiencing this affliction. It causes us to ask ourselves, beloved, are, are we filled with contempt towards God's grace? When someone comes to the waters of Jesus Christ, are we tempted to become embittered because they come from lives of sin? Because they don't look like us? Because they have no training in the faith and so they have a lot of rough edges? Are we filled with bitterness and contempt for this, the power of God's grace? Don't be like Gehazi, a bitter heart toward outsiders is one of the most spiritually dangerous things to have. But we also see Naaman, the Syrian, the commander of the Syrian army, and look at the change that God brings about in his heart. He's worshipful. And he comes with a profession of faith. He's, he's ready to, to, to shower uh, Elisha with, with gifts. He has true, saving, exclusive faith. I, I know that there is no God in all the earth but except in Israel. He says, I'm not going to worship these other gods anymore. In fact, I want to I bring earth back from Israel so that I can build an altar back home because I'm not, I'm not worshiping those other gods anymore. He's repentant and he's, he's careful. He says, Elisha, I have this, this situation. My, my master goes into this temple, and I know it's a false temple, and I'm not going to be worshiping, but he's going he's to lean on me, and I'm, am I able to still do that? 
Will God forgive me? It's an, really an amazing example of God's compassion and his patience with his people. And as Elisha says, go in peace, essentially. You may still fulfill your, your official duties. But then look at the heart of, of Naaman. He's humble. We read twice that he gets down from his chariot to meet this servant of Elisha, to meet Gehazi. This is the man who, when he was first met with the messenger from Elisha, he was ready to call the whole thing off. Now he's getting down from his chariot to speak to this servant. He says, is all well. Amazingly humble, isn't he? And then he's kind and he's gracious. The story from Gehazi is very suspicious. And yet, what does he do? He gladly gives him more than he asks for. And he's happy to do so. Take two talents. Right? Here's, take clothes. Take whatever you need. So, in closing, we consider all of these things. Right? Someone who's astonished by grace, someone who's astounded by God's grace, who loves God's grace, will show something of these fruits. If you truly love Jesus Christ and you are thankful for His saving grace, the rest tends to fall into place. All the things in your life tend to fall in place in terms of how are you faithful, how are you obedient, how do you navigate some of the complexities of life. It doesn't make everything simple, but if you love Jesus Christ the way and the path of obedience becomes much clearer. Abide in Christ, beloved, and you will be filled with the Spirit. As you consider your own heart and your own life, see the amazing, the unexpected power of God and His grace. As unexpected things come into your life, remember the unexpectedness of God's grace that now anchors you in Jesus Christ. The greatest unexpected thing that God has given to you be astonished by it, treasure it in your hearts, and be not filled with bitterness when God saves a Syrian or someone who doesn't check all of our normal boxes. Next, rest in your Father's love, rest in the Son's work, and rest in the Spirit's presence. Embrace all that God has for us in the gospel, pictured for us in baptism, and then remember your baptism. Remember that what it says and what it means. Embrace every day the promises that are held out to us in baptism. Look to Naaman the Syrian. See his affliction washed away. And let that remind you of what Jesus has done in washing away your sins, O believer. And then let grace change you. Let grace change you. As you come to see it more, as you come to hear of it more, never tire of it. Never tire of grace, but grow each day in the truth that God saves wretched sinners like you and me. And may His grace, like a fetter, bind our wandering hearts to Him. May it be said of each of us, by His grace and by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray.